Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast with me, Jill Foose, your host for the episode. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach in Chicago and the founder and owner of Jill Foose Wellness, a concierge health coaching business. The Health Trip, health Trip Podcast is a place where you and I will explore and travel down various health paths with functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded health and wellness enthusiasts learning about human science and how it relates to optimizing our well-being. I'm pleased to welcome my guest today, Judy Cho. Judy is a nutritional therapy practitioner and holds a psychology and communications degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Judy is the author of Carnivore Cure, the ultimate elimination diet for optimal health. Judy is a functional nutrition and holistic health private practice serving both clients remotely and in Austin, Texas. She works with clients by focusing on the root cause of an array of health challenges. Prior to becoming a nutritional therapist, Judy Cho was a management consultant at a top five consulting firm for over 12 years. She's now leveraging her psychology degree and nutritional therapy education to help serve the community in the most effective ways. She's a nutritional advocate for the carnivore diet and most days her two young boys follow a low carb or a ketogenic diet. She focuses on debunking nutritional misinformation and promoting self-knowledge and self-advocacy. She shares bite-sized holistic nutrition information with her infographics on social media platforms and she is passionate about helping people to be the best selves and live their best lives. So welcome, Judy. Thank you so much for joining me today on the my health trip podcast, which is new. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Yeah, and I'd like to say before we start to everybody out there listening that Judy and I are not medical doctors. So we're just having a conversation. We're gonna dive a little bit deep in the carnivore diet. And if you're new to the carnivore diet, we're gonna talk all about what it is, what it means to be a carnivore, all those um, little nuggets in there. But this is just information and suggestions. And before you go and make any rash decisions or medical changes in your life, definitely consult your primary care physician, whether it's an allopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor. Make sure this is something that is going to be safe and a healthy journey for you. Um, that being said, I love your book and I'm gonna hold it up here. This is The Carnivore Cure, which I finished um, probably a month ago, but as you can see, I have a lot of purple sticky notes in here because I absolutely love all of the information, all of your tips and your infographics are stellar. They are awesome. <laughs> so awesome job with the book. Um, so today we're gonna, again, talk about the carnivore lifestyle, why Judy feels it's the ultimate elimination diet. And so I stumbled upon carnivore, a year ago when we just shut down on COVID. And I was all, I have five kids. They were all dispersed all over the country. One stuck in Canada for a little bit. And I was home by myself and I'm thinking, all right, if I'm gonna try to do anything new, now's the time. Because if it doesn't work and I don't feel good, I'm home. But if it does work and I'm here, I have all this precious time on my hand to be in one place and really focus on my own health journey. And before that, I was keto for a few years. So I've definitely been down paleo, keto. I've done everything. I was a vegan 
30 years ago and just have experimented with many different ways of eating. And I absolutely loved this 30 day carnivore challenge that I participated in from this, um, from somebody down in, in Australia. And I was just so intrigued by the whole thing. I had half a thyroid, um, had my half a thyroid taken out about 20, 22 years ago. And I've been chasing my own labs for over 20 years, trying to balance my own thyroid, trying to balance my hormones after having five children, um, you know, aging and just always wanting to stay optimized. I've been a healthy athlete since I was 16 and I've been on this journey for many, many decades, but I did not feel 100%. And for as much time and energy and knowledge that I have myself, um, I was annoyed. I was annoyed that my labs were, you know, you fix one thing and then something else falls off the cliff and you're just back to ground zero. And the carnivore diet within days, within a week, I, I noticed a massive change in my energy, in my mood, in my sleep, in my libido, in, in everything. It, my, my workouts were better. My my body became lean just within three weeks. Like I've already, I've already always been lean, but even leaner um, and building that muscle mass didn't seem as hard as it was before. Um, and I'm, you know, in my fifties. So these are all challenging things for many, many men and women out there who are middle-aged, but it was, de it's definitely my sweet spot. I've been on it for a year. Um, I don't even miss chocolate and I was a chocoholic and that was really hard for me to give up. And I'm just excited to talk to you about the carnivore diet, get your, I already know your perspective, but to share your perspective with my community is just um, such a, a gift to them. So let's just dive in. First, I want to know how you discovered carnivore, your own personal journey, how this works with your family. We've, I know you have two younger kids. So tell me about how you got here. Sure. So I was a management consultant. Um, so I was plant-based for about 12 years. Um, I had occasional fish, but it was primarily just veggies, um, very low fat. So I think it was a combination of not having enough protein plus not having enough good fats that made me basically start struggling with mental health. Never once did I think it was a diet since plant-based is supposed to be so good for health. Um, so as I was traveling the world kind of thing, and um, just eating like whatever foods I wanted, but from a plant-based perspective, I was just declining in health mentally and not necessarily physically. But one thing I noticed is I started kind of binging behind closed doors. I probably wasn't getting enough fat. So the body was like, go get some fat, go get anything that will trigger, you know, like overeating. And so that's kind of how I think I managed to stay plant-based for such a long time was to eat a lot of like processed junk foods in the middle of the night and then do things to compensate, whether it was purging, whether it was um, just uh, restricting. And so um, basically things hit the wall when I had my first son and I got really sick. I took antibiotics. I believe that I probably had very few gut bugs because I was using a lot of diuretics and stuff to kind of maintain my weight. And so you know, because when you eat a lot of vegetables, you can be very constipated. So that was me. I was eating like a pound of spinach every day. And, and so I was literally taking laxatives every day. And so, um, I don't know if it was a mix of that. The doctors never knew, but, um, I ended up taking antibiotics and my memory kind of just wiped out on me. I don't really know exactly what happened, but I was forced to stop nursing 
and people, my family, um, my husband, they just had no idea if I kind of come back to normal. And so, you know, they even had thoughts of, okay, how are we going to raise um, my oldest son? And he was only six months at that time. And so fast forward time, um, I, you know, I went through sort of eating disorder therapy where they were like, yeah, you've had um, moderate to kind of a low grade depression your whole life, it sounds like. And so what's so wrong with you taking antidepressants? So I listened to my psych psychiatrist and I, you know, believed every word. And I was like, okay, I guess this is my lot in life where I just struggle with mental health and I'm just wired that way. And so I took it. The thing is that within three months, um, I was on the highest dose. So I just started at the high highest dose, not really fully working where I wasn't motivated. Um, I was still having a hard time getting out of bed, just, you know, really hard to just do anything in a day. And so my psychiatrist was basically saying, well, there's these add-on drugs, these antipsychotics and these other drugs to basically support it. And I started, and I kind of actually started gaining a little bit of weight and I knew something was wrong. Like it's only three months in, I'm at the highest dose. Now they're adding these add-ons that are normally for schizophrenics or, you know, for people with bipolar. And they're saying, but we've also seen that it helps with um, depression. And so uh, when I got pregnant with my second kid, I was scared that all of this was going to happen again. And so I just started digging into nutrition. Essentially, I found keto and I started doing keto a little after my second child was born. And I noticed that a lot of my issues with mental health, um, even like disordered eating, a lot of it was healing. Um, I think a lot of going to therapy helped with the cognitive behavioral side of it. But I noticed that after every few months, I'd kind of fall off, whether it was stress, lack of sleep, having young kids, whatever it is. And then I go back into a binge. And I think I never got over this craving of sugar because I was always making keto treats, fat bombs with laced with erythritol and stevia. And I was always drinking diet sodas or zevias. And so I knew that there was this really stressful period coming in my life. I kept seeing online that um, people are using this meat-based diet and which I thought was incredibly crazy. Um, uh, and they were healing. And so I said, to my husband, you know, I'm considering adding meat back and he never saw me eat meat in, a, in the whole time we knew each other. Um, but, you know, long story short, I basically tried it and then it was supposed to be two weeks of just getting over this really stressful period and it kind of stuck. And the more I read, the more I was really livid. So knowing back then that I was, you know, this kind of delicate flower where I was going through mental health struggles. I'm like the worst mom because I can't nurse anymore. I was taken away from my child type of thing. And then thinking that, oh, I'm just wired to be broken and realizing that, hey, a lot of it was actually food. And I have never, and so now I've been carnivore for over, I guess, three years now, but I've never had a bout of depression. Sure, I go through moments of anxiety and just the normal amounts, but never once have I had a struggle getting out of bed or having those bouts of depression that my doctor said I was just wired with. And so I know for certain it was, whether it was my gut issues, because I also, you know, did some gut healing, but it was, a lot of it was my diet. And it just, the more I dug into the science, all the nutritional information, it really upset me realizing that we are so fed the wrong information in terms of nutrition. And had I 
just went the nutrition route. I didn't have to go through years of struggling and finding my voice in all of this. And so that's how I kind of found carnivore. It was, you know, I hit a wall. Um, things were pretty bleak in my life and it honestly saved my life. Wow. And you know, that is a scenario I hear over and over and over again with mostly my female clients, my middle-aged female clients. Usually by the time they get to me, they're on, you know, four different antidepressant, anti-anxiety and sleeping pills, because this all, as you know, wrecks your gut, wrecks your brain, changes your circadian rhythm. It's just, it's not you. It's the pills controlling every move that you make. And it's, um, it's really scary to tell someone you might be able to get off of these if you change the way you eat. Because some, I've had women come to me who they've been taking all of this stuff for 40 years, you know? And so it's, um, it's definitely a very common scenario. I think it's, becoming more and more, um, more and more available, the information is becoming more and more available to know that your gut health and your brain health definitely sets up your mood and how you feel. Whether yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say before we move on from the, yeah. the whole like depression and stuff is that I have some clients that struggle with um, depression and so they're on antidepressants. They've gotten off it and they had like this kind of dip where they felt almost better on them. And so then they get back on it, but they suffer with a lot of sleep sleep issues. So they'll suffer with restless leg syndrome and they just um, like really have issues going to bed because of it. Well, antidepressants, one of the consequences of them are, is having restless leg syndrome. And a lot of people don't know that they just think, oh, as I'm aging, I am struggle with RLS now. Right. And it's not, it's because the drug does that. And I know that you know, our allopathic care thinks that maybe there's not enough serotonin in the brain that's causing us to have better moods. Um, And so let's just kind of keep excess in there. And that's what the SSRIs do. But it's not the full story, because if that was truly the case, why are people constantly having to take more and more or take a different type of drug or something to have the body not stay immune to that specific pharmaceutical? It's much more than that. And oftentimes, I mean, just from a gut perspective, your serotonin, 90% of it is in your gut. Mm -hmm. Now it's not the same that will be in your brain, but all the serotonin, they all talk to each other, even if the one in the gut is not the one that gets to your brain. It's, um, but I think that's why a lot of carnivores, when they start, you know, eating a lot of the more toxic foods, the ones that kind of damage the gut and kind of let the gut rest and not have to sift through toxins, they start noticing a lift in mood and it's because they're not poisoning their body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so did you go to school to become a nutritional um, therapist after this personal experience? Yeah. So after, you know, I fell in love with nutrition. I, it's funny because I actually was pre-med during school. I studied biology, organic chemistry, and then I went the route of psychology because I was so fascinated by humans interactions and all of that. And so I never thought I was going to go back to the kind of doctor route, but it's so interesting. I fell in love with nutrition. And then I told my husband while I was still on maternity leave, I think I just want to go to nutritional therapy, not to necessarily make it um, a practice, but I just love it so much. I would love to get a foundation. And um, he, you know, he was supportive because basically 
for a long period of him knowing me, I was depressed. And it's like, I actually had a passion now and I wanted to do things outside of my, even my young kids. And so we did it. And then, um, yeah, it was really rewarding. So obviously I learned a lot more outside of it, but it was a very good baseline to understand like the different, like anatomy and physiology and how blood sugar handling happens and, or like fatty acids, why they're so important or digestion work. So all of those things, um, was very beneficial for me to do nutritional therapy school. Right. Well, you know, they said everything happens for a reason and not that I wouldn't want anyone to go through a 12 year battle of depression or a year battle of depression, but look what happened for you to come out of it. You wrote an amazing book, went to school and are helping so many people get healthy. And speaking of your book, let's just dive in. So in the title of your book, you use the phrase, the ultimate elimination diet. I 100% am on board with that. I think carnivore is the ultimate elimination diet, but you know, there's other elimination diets out there. There's Whole30, AIP, FODMAP, Paleo. Why, in your opinion, is the carnivore diet the purest form of an elim- elimination diet? So the short story is that it removes all plants. And I'll kind of dive into that right now. But if you think about it, all of these, whether it's AIP, FODMAP, Whole30, um, Whole all of them are really great at being an elimination diet. They remove majority of the processed foods, the seed oils. So already from there, you'll be a leg up and you'll feel so much better. Now, some people are just, you know, more compromised in health. And so they need a more, I guess, ultimate elimination diet. And this is where if you remove certain plant foods or certain nuts and seeds, um, all plants basically you know, animals can run from their predator. So they don't need to necessarily store toxins, whereas plants, they're in the ground, they can't move. And so the way that they can deter predators from eating them is essentially protect themselves with toxins within their body. So if you eat them, some of them, you know, um, mix together and they make toxins. Some of them just have these toxins, these proteins within them that are known to like rip our gut apart there. And so the lesson is that after you eat it, it's like, hmm, that made me not feel good. Or I got nauseous or I got tired after, or I have, um, I have hives or eczema, something is off and now I'm just not going to eat it. So then the plants ultimate motive of don't ever eat me again works. Right. So if you think of plants in that way and how they, their ultimate goal, just like with humans and animals is to procreate, um, they, they want to just, you know, create and uh, more and more of their plants without getting killed. And so if you think of it that way, sometimes what's wonderful about all of those elimination diets is they focus on certain things. So the FODMAP removes anything that's something oligosaccharides, anything that has like a type of sugar. Um, Whole30 removes a lot of these kind of unnatural ingredients. Um, AIP removes a lot of, um, I think it removes dairy. I forget exactly, but they're, you know, they go back to more kind of hunter gatherer eating. The thing is none of them remove all of the plants. And so I'm not saying that we need to remove plants for the rest of our lives. Some people now just feel better. And so they don't like, they don't really like care for vegetables anyway. So it's a great, like green card to like get out of eating plants, but for some people, they're just, they're at a point where their immune system is just responding to everything that comes into their body. And so anything they eat, it becomes like a foe. And so if you were to remove any of the plant toxins and a lot of these kind of, um, these foods that can wreck your gut, 
then it gives that part of the body a little bit of a rest. And so when you're eating just meat, which don't really carry these toxins, but they're the most bioavailable, meaning that these nutrients will be absorbed the best and easiest, even if you have the worst gut health than any other plant food, you're basically allowing your gut to like, hey, it's okay that your gut's kind of impaired, but you can still get some nutrients from these meats, and then you could start healing. And so as you fuel your body with the right foods for your body, you're basically um, can finally start healing. And then as you heal, then you can start figuring out, okay, what plant foods can I add back? But there's no elimination diet that removes all plants. A lot of them remove a lot of plants, but they don't remove all. And the question is why, right? So why not just start really clean with the baseline of just like beef or lamb or some other ruminant meat? And then start healing from the baseline of like, you know, starting from scratch. And then as you are uh, feel well, or like have a baseline of like no symptoms, then you slowly add back in. I mean, if you're going to do an elimination diet anyway, might as well, you know, do the ultimate elimination diet. I agree. Um, You know, my daughter, (coughs) my adult daughter used to eat kale all the time, sauteed, but mostly raw. And it would be in her smoothies or a huge salad. And she never felt good. She always had just a lot of bloat, migraines, um, joint pain. And she was always in like just a bad mood. And I said, you know, why don't you just stop eating dark leafy greens for a little bit? Just, just stop. Give up the kale. Give me, give me two weeks to increase your fat give you more protein and let's just see how you feel. If in two weeks you don't feel any better, you go back to your raw cam. And of course she did this. And within two days, she said, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. I cannot believe this is just a game changer for me. Like I am never eating kale or spinach again. And she doesn't. And what I wanted to bring up here was Dave Asprey. A couple of days ago, I was listening to a new podcast and he was talking about we was talk, talking um, about smoothies and his guest was saying how he loves to make a kale smoothie. And Dave said, kale is disgusting and should never be eaten by another human being. Like even my pigs, when I tried to feed them kale, they spit it out. And I just thought, you know, that's, that's, it's so true. The kale is not the superfood that everybody thinks it is. And, you know, people look at us and think we're crazy. What do you mean? How can kale not be a health food, a superfood? And there's a lot of, a lot of functional medicine and holistic practitioners like us who really do not want their clients eating these dark leafy greens. But we're also told on the flip side, that dark leafy greens are the best. So what is it about kale? Why is kale this, this, you know, objectified, leaf that people like us really do not like. So if you think about kale and spinach and these dark leafy greens, um, they have more nutrients and it's a technical fact um, than if you were to eat just like iceberg lettuce, uh, romaine lettuce, all of the more clear that are just basically water. And it's interestingly because they don't have a lot of nutrients, they don't have a lot of anti-nutrients. So when I was talking about plant toxins, um, what we call them basically anti-nutrients. So kale, although it may have a lot of uh, nutrients, a lot of vitamins and minerals, the thing is, the anti-nutrients in plant foods are really, really 
um, they, they basically bind to minerals. And so what that means is even if like um, spinach specifically, for example, is rich in iron, but it also, it has um, oxalates and it has other anti-nutrients that bind to iron. So not only are you likely not getting any of the iron and absorbing it from the spinach, now if you're eating that with a steak, you're not gonna also get the iron that's in the steak and absorb that amount of iron. So the net result is you're gonna think, wow, I had some steak and some spinach. I just ate a iron rich diet. But the reality is you probably may be just um, either negative iron from the amount or that you just really didn't get anything from that diet, from that meal. So these are the things that we never consider, right? So when we see nutrition facts and nutrition labels, we think, oh, wow, this, this amount of protein is the same as meat. So why do I need to eat meat? Um, plant foods are so much better, but the thing is we don't consider anti-nutrients. And then we also don't consider how much bioavailability or absorption we can have. Whereas meat, it's just always in the form that we need to absorb it. So for example, meat has heme iron, which is much more bioavailable and absorbable, um, than uh, non-heme iron from, um, plants. So the plant one has to get converted in the body. And so if you don't have good digestion, it gets impaired. Mm -hmm. But specifically with kale, you know, I looked into it a little bit. So it depends on the kale, um, like dinosaur kale is really high in oxalates. So for that reason, dinosaur kale, you shouldn't eat it because oxalates are one of the most potent toxins from a plant world perspective, but not all kales are high in oxalates. So that's one thing. So it really depends on what kind of kale, but in general, um, I think lately kale has been researched and found to carry um, from so like, even if you get the organic variety, um, they are being, they're found to collect a lot more of the pesticides, even if they're organic. And one of the organic ones they use is like uh, based from like nicotine. And so there's a lot of chemicals based on just the insecticide that they use. And it just kind of gets trapped. Think about kale, how it looks. It's so easy to probably trap <laughs> toxins. And then secondly, um, I don't know if it's the soil or how it's sourced, but they are really, um, they're getting found to have a lot of thallium, which is a toxic metal. And that heavy metal um, is known to damage our mitochondria, which is our energy within our cells. So for all of those reasons, that's why kale additionally to the toxins that are already as anti-nutrients, these are probably additional reasons why you may not want to be eating kale. Um, if you think about when you cook certain plant foods, you boil it and it may reduce some of the toxins that are in it. And then you could just throw out the water and you just eat the steamed or the boiled. And it'll be even, it'll break down some of the fibers to even mm -hmm. be more digestible and absorbable by the body. But when you are eating raw vegetables and then you're just blending them up, you're getting a heavy, heavy dose of plants that you normally wouldn't eat if you're just eating like a normal size salad. Um, and then on top of that, it's none of the anti-nutrients are gone. None of the toxins, you're just blending it up and then you're making it into a juice or a liquid form that will go through your system way more quicker. And it's a lot more toxins for your body to tolerate. And so therefore you'll feel the bloat. Um, you'll feel that excess fiber causing some bloat and indigestion and just general unwellness. And then your liver and all the, your detox pathways will get a you know, a burst of the thallium or whatever other thing or the pesticide, the nicotine pesticide or insecticide, and all of that will be a tax on your body. And that is why a lot of people, even though they say these green smoothies and stuff are, make you feel so good in like after a month or so, people actually feel a lot worse on them. 
initially you may feel good because you're removing all the toxic foods, right? If you remove processed foods, if you all of a sudden start eating on a calorically uh, lower, you know, kind of calorie um, in a day, you're going to feel better, if, especially if you remove all the seed oils and the processed packaged foods. But after a certain point, you're going to start feeling worse because you're not fueling your body with the right foods. Absolutely. And that brings me to a, a great point here is that carbohydrates are non-essential to life. Proteins and healthy fats are completely essential to life. We will die if we don't have them in our body. And a lot of people, especially I find women, deprive themselves of enough protein and enough healthy fats. They're afraid. They feel that they're good. They don't like the feeling of being full or they are afraid that eating fat is going to make them fat. They don't, you know, it's very hard to change in a very slow process to change your mindset about thinking about these foods in a very different, you know, through a different lens. And so when we talk about the carnivore diet and it's a zero, basically a zero carb diet, um, you must increase your fat. And one of the best ways is to eat fattier cuts of animal protein, you know, fatty cuts of fish, fattier cuts of steak, like ribeyes, um, and um, fattier cuts of chicken, like chicken thighs. And it's a, if you experience this in your practice where people are just so fearful to make that change. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I mean, just if you think about it from a dietary perspective or a caloric perspective, calories of, from sugars are much less um, per ounce or gram than like fat is. So if um, for every gram uh, and you do a comparison, it's easier to eat a lot more in terms of weight of carbohydrates and still be really low in calories because sugar just is less calories than fat per gram. So there's, when we focus on just the calories, a 1500 calorie diet from just carbohydrates versus 1500 calories from meat is a totally different nutritional perspective. Most people don't see that. They're just like, oh, I'm eating 1500 calories. So then they're like, I don't care if it's just wholly from sugar, right? So that's one of the mind shifts that we definitely need to do. But if you grew up in the 80s, maybe even the 70s, I'm not even sure. But if you grew up just, you know, a couple decades ago, there's this been this real strong push of fear of fat because fat will cause heart disease saturated fats cause heart disease. And it's just not true. So one thing is that if you go and look at the USDA requirements of cholesterol, they used to say don't eat a lot of eggs because saturated fat causes heart disease. And so you need to limit your intake of eggs. It doesn't exist anymore. So there is no upper limit of the amount of cholesterol you're supposed to eat in a day, because they just couldn't find the scientific proof in it. But they're not going to admit, you know, on mainstream media, oh, we're wrong, you guys can eat as many eggs. So now they just kind of shifted to eat healthy fats and healthy fats typically means olive oil. But oftentimes olive oil can be, you know, um, they can just mix it with other seed oils, which are inflammatory. So, um, but if you think about it, what I see with a lot of my clients is so when they go carnivore, they're still eating really lean. But the thing is, we only have energy from two sources, essentially, it's either from fats, or it's from carbohydrates. So carbohydrates basically break down into glycogen in the body, and we use it as energy, our brain does use glucose, but we can break down protein into glycogen to use it as energy. But otherwise, you have to use it from fat and fat, we will then produce ketones, and we will use fat from our meats. The thing is what I see a lot in the nutrition spaces, 
fat makes you fat. And if you have fat on your body, you should use the fat on your body first before adding fat to your diet, which is just not in my practice. And maybe it's just my population of people I work with, but it's just, if you eat just too much protein, there's stuff called like a rabbit starvation diet. If you eat too lean of protein and only eat protein, and then you're not eating the carbohydrates and you're not adding fat, you will, your body has to do it requires a lot of energy within the body to break down that protein. And you will feel kind of like that thermogenic effect, you know, the meat sweats, like some people call it, and you are burning a lot more, but then you can't sustain the rest of your body and you will start losing. Yes, you'll lose a lot of weight, but you will feel horrible. So this is where we need a lot of the fats to um, every single cell of our body. The outer layer is made of fats. So you need fats for just that. 60% of our brain um, is cholesterol, which is a fat. So we need fat just for our brain. And side note, this is why statins can be so dangerous because our brain is 60% cholesterol. And if you're taking a, a cholesterol reducing medication, what's the guarantee that it's not reducing it from your brain as well. And there are studies where a lot of men that take statins overall, their mental health um, declines. Uh, so they struggle with depression and then they get really violent. Uh, obviously these are all um, correlations and we don't know for sure if it's causation, but you have to wonder if your brain is 60% cholesterol and then you're taking a cholesterol reducing medication, is that not reducing some of the cholesterol within your brain? Um, but in general, our body uses um, the heart, the brain prefers, it's a cleaner source of energy is through fat. And so we need fat. Um, our hormones are, if you are highly stressed and you are producing a lot of cortisol because cortisol is what helps us to manage stress in our lives. If we have blood sugar imbalance, we use cortisol as well. All well, cortisol is made from cholesterol. And again, if you don't have enough fat or you're not eating enough fat, it will be much harder for your body to sustain all these different levers in your body that's going on. So you need hormones. I mean, you need fat for your hormones. I've had clients that were um, struggling with amenorrhea, um, hot flashes, and I just made them heavy dose on fats. And yes, maybe they kind of stalled with their weight loss or they even gained a little bit, but they couldn't complain to me as much because their sleep is better. So they're not having that cortisol spike in the middle of the night. And then they get their period back and they're having less hot flashes. So when you see things like this work, you know that, I mean, even in the hunter gatherer phase, if you know, you believe in all that stuff, like if you just think about even generations and generations ago, they didn't have the luxury of eating a rainbow of plants. Like it's, they just didn't have that luxury. So maybe they had a, um, the base was animal meat. And then they maybe had a little bit of berries or they had a little bit of plants and okay. So the majority is not plants, but the way we eat now, I would say almost everyone is plant-based. If you are eating a heavy standard American diet of grains, whole we um, whole grains, all of that, you're eating a very plant-based diet. Absolutely. And, you know, it's um, while we're talking about saturated fat and cholesterol, let's just talk about the lipid panel because right. it's very scary for many people to go down this path of becoming a carnivore, even if it's just temporary for 30 to 90 days as a reboot, as a metabolic reboot, right? And then they'll slowly add in other fruits and vegetables. Um, they're fearful because their allopathic doctors put the fear of God in them that saturated fat and cholesterol will cause cardiac events. My father died of a cardiac event and was a huge meat eater. 
okay, but he was sedentary. He smoked, he didn't sleep, he drank alcohol. He was a very unhealthy person and ate a lot of root vegetables like potatoes with his steaks. Um, I, on the other hand, our family has high cholesterol. We naturally genetically have high cholesterol. My brothers, I have one brother who's on a statin. I have one that's not. Um, I think he might take something else for it, but I also have high cholesterol and my lipid panel changed drastically when I went carnivore. I took more blood work after about six months and my HDLs went up, my um, LDLs went up. But my functional medicine doctor was not alarmed and she was not concerned because my triglyceride to my HDL ratio was less than one and my LDL particle sizes were great. So there's, when you go to an allopathic doctor and I find this all the time, they do not do a deep dive into blood work. They look at the basics and then they put fear into people. Do not eat red meat more than twice a month, cut down on your saturated fats, eat more plants. And maybe someone will lose weight like that because maybe they're putting themselves in a caloric deficit, but over time they're really doing damage. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on lipid panels when you are a carnivore? Yeah, so our lipid panel will definitely be different from um, a non-carnivore. And so that's something to always be mindful of before you get started. So in the book, I, um, in my carnivore care book, I do have a whole section on cholesterol. And so these are the first things I'll say. So a lot of doctors will only look at, and these are, I think the allopathic care, the entire kind of community is shifting. So that's one thing I will say. So they do seem to kind of are starting to look at the particle size. Not everyone does though. So if, most doctors, I'd say they still kind of look at total cholesterol and then your LDL. If those two are high, they're like, you need to get on a statin right now. And most of my clients have uh, received that recommendation. But there is a study in Massachusetts called the Framingham study. I think it's been going on for six generations now. And all they do is study heart disease, the risk of heart disease. I think they're the ones that found that if you smoke, your risk of heart disease increases. I think it was one of their studies. Um, they also found where, you know, pregnant women, same thing, there's risk there. Um, and so what they found is that, yes, if your LDL increases, then your risk of heart disease does go up, but it's in context. So if your HDL goes up with it, then the risk is not as high. So there is a graphic in my book that talks about with your LDL going up, as long as your HDL goes up with it. So you really want to see, and I know these are numbers and it might seem like um, mumbo jumbo to people, but if your marker is like above 60 for HDL, I think that's pretty good. And then if your LDL goes up with it, it's okay. But then I want to see your triglycerides. So if your triglycerides are under a hundred and the reason why triglycerides matter is they are the kind of floating, um, the floating cholesterol in your blood. Mm -hmm. And so in the standard American diet, they say the norm is up to 150, but we don't want to see that uh, with just uh, meat-based dieters. We want to see it at hundred and below. Mm -hmm. And then your risk of heart disease is less just from the Framingham studies. They show that as LDL goes up, but if HDL goes up to your cardiovascular risk decreases and they have, and it's in my book, but there's other places you can find this information. Again, it's called the Framingham studies and you can look at LDL and HDL relationship and the risk 
against cardiovascular disease. Um, and then same thing with the, um, with the triglycerides, you can look into Dave Feldman's work at the cholesterol code. They've done so much research on this and, you know, the other things you could do is look at other markers that, you know, will show if there's inflammation, because a lot of the heart disease stems from inflammation and that's where cholesterol will um, increase because if you have in inflammation in a certain part of the body, you'll have more cholesterol go there to basically help heal that area. And so you can always look up um, HCRP, which is C-reactive protein. That's an inflammatory marker. You can also get your calcium, your um, artery calcium score. Um, but if you look at all of those, so carnivores tend to have really high cholesterol where doctors will like, you need to get on a statin now, but if you look at their CRP normal is even at 1.0, but a lot of people will be under 0.5 as a carnivore, which means that they have like little to no inflammation in their body. Their CAC score might be close to zero. And you see all these other markers show, okay, actually you're at really good health. It's just that your cholesterol is different, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. And that's where context really matters. Um, one of my clients, her HSCRP, the C-reactive protein was really high compared to, you know, a common carnivore. And she freaked out. And I freaked out too, because I was like, oh no, what's going on with this diet? But then I saw her blood work from a year prior and it was even much higher than that. So in context, she's go trending in the right way, but without the test prior, we had no idea. So right. this is where having the historical data is really important. And then knowing what kind of diet you're on and also just trust your symptoms. So if you're not feeling well and your markers are off, then yes, maybe something's going on. But in general, if you feel great, and just because your doctor's like, you need to get on medication just to normalize values, I would question that if you feel really good. Yeah, you know, I just had my um, heart scan, my CAC score was a zero. I did this a month ago, because my mom was just very, you know, just a little bit upset that I was a pure carnivore doesn't understand it. it was, you know, nervous about our family's history. And it was a zero. And I was like, yes, you know, because I eat ribeyes almost daily. <laughs> um, but it just goes to show you that A, everybody's different. And B, we saturated fat and cholesterol is a necessary thing in our body. We absolutely must take it to feel optimized. Yes. Um, in your book, you state that 90% of Americans produce too little HCL, which is hydrochloric acid. So that's the stomach acid for those of you listening that aren't, weren't aware of that. So a lot of my clients come to me and they've been on PPIs, which are proton pump inhibitors for the better part of 20 to 40 years. And it's just, it's, it goes back to the antidepressants and the anti-anxiety and the sleep meds for 20 to 40 years, right? Eventually your stomach because of all the stress you're feeling, because of all the pharmaceuticals you're taking, your gut is inflamed and it's compromised. And so PPIs are um, things like Pepsid, Prilosec, Nexium, Prevacid, and they treat acid reflux, GERD, ulcers. How does a carnivore diet help heal the gut and reestablish balance? if someone comes in and they've been on these PPIs for a long time? 
Yeah. So the gut is a wondrous place. It starts all the way from seeing food to salivating. And then until you have like a bowel movement. So knowing all of that, um, what I will say is carnivore does heal a lot of gut health issues. If you have more severe, I do know that uh, there are people that need more supplementation. So it's not just, um, okay. So the first step obviously is remove a lot of the toxic foods that may cause constipation. So a lot of fiber actually can back you up. And so we'll make you feel constipated. If you are constipated, you're just not going to digest and absorb your food as well. You just don't, won't feel as well. And so you may not want to eat as much because you're just kind of backed up. And then the thing is, if your stomach, um, so this is why you need the, um, the amount of stomach acid that I was talking about in the book, but if you don't have enough stomach acid, the food will not move and go through the digestive process. So it'll kind of just stay in your stomach. It could get rancid, it could putrefy and all of those things. And then what ends up happening is your stomach is like a small, you know, there's a small capacity in there. And so if the bottom part of the valve doesn't open up to the small intestine, and oftentimes that's based on your pH levels in your stomach. So if you don't have enough stomach acid, that valve in the bottom won't release. And there's a several reasons this happens. Um, it could just be slow dis, um, delay, but whatever the reason is, eventually um, the pressure will go up. And then when it goes up, it'll start making you feel that GERD and the heartburn upward. And it's not because you have too much stomach acid. It's actually that you don't have enough. It's not helping things just kind of flow. And so instead it goes up and any amount in the wrong place will make you feel heartburn. So one, it could be just that you're eating foods that are culprits to causing that type of process where it goes back up. So a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of processed foods, a lot of spicy foods, a lot of, and if you think about it, even spicy foods or caffeine and coffee, they all have anti-nutrients. So all of those, it's the same thing. It's the plant-based food with some type of toxin that causes, um, the poor digestion. And so it goes up. And so then the doctor is like, okay, so you have a problem of heartburn or acid in your esophagus. So let me give you a PPI. And what that does is it basically shuts off all the kind of areas that will produce more hydrochloric acid. And so while it may make you feel better right now, so that you don't get the heartburn up on the esophagus, it breaks down the full digestive process. So instead you're worsening the risk of getting like cancer in your, um, and getting ulcers. Like there's just risks of all these things. And until you stop it, you'll never heal from it, nor will you ever have proper digestion. So again, the thing is when you initially stop, it's the, without the PPIs, you'll have acid. And again, the, you know, your body is not normalized to have the valve open to the small intestine. And so you're going to probably feel heartburn again. And so the instinctual thing is I need to get back on the PPIs, but some people take more stomach acid, so hydrochloric acid and bet betaine HCL. Some people take other digestive enzymes to kind of help the stomach get used to doing more breaking down and absorbing the nutrients. But sometimes you just have to kind of grin and bear it and remove a lot of the toxic foods and struggle with a little bit of heartburn. It won't be for long, but you kind of go through a kind of tough, you know, period of weaning yourself off it. And then as you eat a cleaner diet, you will not have the heartburn. I had a client that was taking PPIs for over 30 years. And the craziest thing is when these heartburn medications came out in the insert, it says, no, do not take for more than two weeks. 
yet people take in for decades. Um, and so it's destroying your, um, your digestive process, which is what will absorb nutrients for the rest of the body to have fuel. And then it also um, has risks of cancer. So you don't want to be doing this because of a little bit of fire in your esophagus. I get it. I used to have a heartburn and it's really, really painful, but change the diet, change the culprit foods that slow down your digestive process. Um, whether it's like grains or seeds that kind of make your gut all, um, uh, have more kind of holes in it. So it's more leaky gut, uh, whether it's that you need a little bit more support to have the delaying of the gastric area be faster. You may need some more um, digestive support there, but it's also just removing a lot of the plant-based foods that are causing, um, are being culprits in this whole situation. And then as your digestive process works well, again, you have less culprit foods to even cause the heartburn. You shouldn't have, um, these situations with GERD and other stuff. And you may have to take it slow. This is where it's very bio-individual. Some clients of mine, they can't eat a lot of fat because fat slows down the digestive process. So if they eat a lot at once of fat, they're going to feel the heartburn, especially if they've been on PPI. So I need, I put them normally on more betaine HCL, some digestive enzymes. I have them eat five meals instead of three, just because right now they cannot tolerate fat. So these are where it gets really bio-individual, but in general, the keys are to remove a lot of the plant-based foods and you need to just get off the PPIs because for every day you're on them, you are slowly causing your body to become much more imbalanced to a risk of just not ideal, not yeah, ideal. Kinds of serious other illnesses, absolutely. Yeah. Um, back to carnivore, how important is it to eat fattier cuts of animal foods? You know, what, what's the ratio of lean meats to fat or fat to animal protein? What do you suggest? So I start my clients off. It, it depends again. So if my clients have hypothyroid, if they have amenorrhea, if they have hot flashes, I know that they probably need more fat and these people probably never really ate fat. So, um, I normally try to get them to 80% fat in total calories, which is a lot. So, uh, so typically I have to start them at 70 or 75 and they kind of go move up to 80. Not everyone has to be at 80%. So what that looks like in terms of actual food is like, if you eat one ribeye, which is already fatty, sometimes ribeye is about 70% of total fat in terms of calories, they may have to add, if they want to hit 80%, they might have to add two to three tablespoons of butter. So, or whatever fat they can tolerate. And so, um, for a lot of women that helps them to get their hormones, a lot more balanced energy, they, it helps them to sleep through the night so that they're not having a cortisol response. But the thing is, sometimes it makes them kind of gain weight. And so that's kind of the balance that I've been working with lately. Um, for me personally, I probably stick around 75% fat. Um, what I noticed is, so if you think about it, the, um, so what I was going to say is what I noticed is that if I don't eat enough fat, I notice I start going into the pantry looking for something to munch on. So whether it's like pork rinds or string cheese or deli meats, it's like, um, I'm not satiated. And so the it's like, I just want to snack more. Whereas if I eat a lot of fat, I have no desire to eat again, like not even nothing. And so that is the biggest indicator for me. And coming from a disordered eating background, I'm very mindful that I am satiated. Um, if you eat enough fat, that'll, because it goes back to, if you eat, eat a lot of protein and not enough fat, your body then has to use for energy, has to break down proteins into amino acids. 
and then convert it to gluconeogenesis to then use it as glycogen or energy as sugars instead of just getting it from fat. And so if you eat enough fat, your body can just use that fat and not have to really do all that kind of breaking it down to um, glycogen. And um, sometimes that's why there are some carnivores where their blood sugar starts going up after eating carnivore for a long time. Yeah. And I actually, when I started carnivore a year ago, I had that issue. I, I didn't really understand the protein to fat ratios and I was trying to figure it out for myself. And I ate way too much protein and not enough fat because I also, even though I'd been keto and I know healthy fats are good for you. I also felt like, huh, well, that's a lot of fat. And am I, what am I going, am I going to be gaining weight? Like, how am I going to be feeling? So I eased into it but um, definitely had symptoms of negative symptoms of eating too much protein. I did not feel full and satiated. I was looking for things to snack on. And I really enjoy the freedom of carnivore in terms of not being hungry, not thinking all day about food. And I have two meals a day that works for me. And I make sure I have plenty of fat and I'm Full for probably six hours after my first meal. I cannot even think about food. And I'm much more productive and happy in my day because I'm not hungry and I'm not grazing and snacking, which is something everybody needs to give up. And so no matter if my client wants to go carnivore or keto or paleo, whatever the diet is, I always suggest to increase fat. It's one of my biggest um, suggestions I give to my clients so that they can feel full and satiated and nourished and not go hunting for more food. Yeah. I mean, that even holds true with kids. So, you know, my, my oldest right now is only six. So one of the questions I always get is how do you keep your kids full or how do you not have them snack and eat whole foods? And it's the same thing with adults. It's basically stop giving them snacks between meals and then let them be hungry so that when there's a plate of meat or um, good fats of butter or you know whatever else it is um, that they will be excited to eat it because they're not full off like applesauce or whatever else snack they would have eaten even if it's string cheese and so my kids typically they probably have like two large meals and then they have like raw goat's milk in the morning so but their meal is very, very heavy fat based as well. So if I cook like a ground beef patty, um, I will add a <laughs> tablespoon of extra butter, right? Or grass fed butter, or I'll add a little bit of organic cheese so that they're getting more and more fat, or I'll give them more egg yolks over the egg whites, right? So the fat is so important, especially for brain health. I cannot um, emphasize that enough. Our kids, for example, their brain is almost. developed by the age of five. So you do not want to be feeding your kids anything almost other than fat and good proteins up to the age of five, because that is the building blocks of what is going to be used for your brain. And again, your brain is 60% fat. So if you're having your brain use like oatmeal, which again is a grain that will block iron. So if you wonder why so many kids are anemic or iron deficient. Is it because they're eating so many grains that are binding to iron? So they're not even absorbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but these kids that eat uh, all these cereals and grains, and this is even for adults, right? So if you're eating granola in the morning with berries, all of that nutrition that we should be getting for fuel for our brains, it will have to convert all of those grains into fats, um, which they can do with like 
carbohydrates and triglycerides, but it's not going to be the same kind of fat and fuel as if we're eating these saturated fats that are rich in cholesterol that, I mean, they're nature's way of being health and fuel for our bodies. I mean, butter has the most, um, per kind of weight of food, it has the most amount of butyrate, which we, you know, we, um, we love our uh, plant foods, our fibrous foods, because they convert to short chain fatty acids, which is butyrate, which is a fiber for our gut health. But you can also have butter. Now, some people argue you need a lot of butter for it, but maybe we don't need a lot. Some of the mammalian cells from our meats will also convert to butyrate. Maybe we don't need a lot. Maybe from our ketones, which is beta hydroxybutyrate, that's another form of butyrate, um, it will feed our intestines. Maybe we just have been fed the wrong narrative that is making us sick. And we should just go back to how we were eating many, many centuries ago. That doesn't mean you can't eat plants, but maybe if you're feeling unwell and allopathic care has not been able to help you other than with getting on medication and it just kind of band-aids the situation, but doesn't necessarily make you feel better. A meat-based diet can do so much for you. And then you can tolerate more, like maybe you start slowly adding berries, see how you feel. Maybe you start adding um, some iceberg lettuce, see how you feel. Granted, there's no nutrition, but it gives you variability, right? And then there's less anti-nutrients. So these are just things to think about. And it's just understanding the narrative around our food. And that, you know, just if you dig a little into the science, the nutrition facts is that meat is the most bioavailable nutrient dense foods that you can have. We talk about carrots being so rich in beta carotene and vitamin A, but you have to convert beta carotene to vitamin A to get absorbed. There are genes that just genetically, you cannot do that digestive process and um, converting it. Well, you can eat beef liver or all these other meats that have a lot of vitamin A and it's in the form that our body uses. So the, and there's so many of these, right? K1 and K2, heme and non-heme iron. There's so many. And if you just ate meat, you can not have to worry about a lot of these issues. Absolutely. And we're coming to an end. And I want to ask you one final question for our listeners. If someone is very interested in using the carnivore diet as a 30 to 90 day reboot and an elimination diet, what are three steps to take to prepare someone for this change in, in their nutritional plan? What are three easy steps they can take? Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's a, because I studied psychology or because I work with clients, but I think working on the mindset is huge. So before you even get started, it's not like on a Friday, you're like, you know what, I'm going to eat like crap this weekend. And then on Monday, I'm going to start a new diet. Like, it's not that simple. You will have a period of motivation and being inspired. And then if you are used to eating a lot of glucose rich foods or carbohydrates, you will feel a dip in energy at first when your body has to convert and use making, uh, getting used to making energy from ketones. So when you have that lull or lower energy, you need to have like a why you have to figure out. And this is where I think mindset is really important. So the first step would be figuring out why do you want to change? Like, what is it? So I would literally get a piece of paper and pen out and write down or write on your phone, uh, what are the ailments you have today and that you're just sick and tired of feeling or having, and then what do you want to change? Whether it's weight, whether it's not being able to sleep through the night, whether it's like you're scratching your skin off in the middle of the night, you're waking up because of asthma, uh, your mental health is just 
not there where it's just even hard to get out of bed. I used to be that person where I would have to write down at night, okay, tomorrow my goal is just to make it to the mailbox. And I wouldn't even be able to make it on some days, sorry. Um, but fueling your body with the right foods and sure, like in the beginning, it was hard to give up sugar, but I, I, I wanted that change enough, but you need to sit there and write it down and write down why you want this change, because you will get into days that are hard. And then, and on those days, you need to get that paper out or that sheet you wrote on your phone and read why you want this change. And so when the going gets tough, because it will, you can read it and it can motivate you like, no, I'm just, I'm craving sugar, but I'm going to eat another piece of steak. And so my second thing goes into, um, before you start eating meat-based, I would start going through your pantry and throwing out foods that are toxic to you. It doesn't matter if you spend a hundred dollars on it. I understand it's money, but there is no food that is poisonous that is worth eating, right? So you can pay the doctor now, or you can pay the pharmaceutical person later, or sorry, you can pay for the food now, or, you know, um, so I would then also um, replenish your freezer or refrigerator with a lot of good meats. Don't worry about grass-fed, grain-fed, whatever it is for now, as you get acclimated, just get the meats you enjoy. If it's ribeye, if it's butter, if it's New York strips, um, if it's lamb chops, whatever, if it's just bacon, like just get the meats that you enjoy. And anytime you have a craving, just eat more meat. And as you are eating this way for longer, you could refine the macros and stuff, but just keep it simple. So one, work on mindset Two, remove the toxic foods in your pantry, in your refrigerator, any temptation foods. Um, if you live with people that are still going to eat that way, then ask them. Like I asked, I asked my husband, I, cause uh, we actually didn't answer this earlier, but my parent, uh, my kids and my husband are not carnivore, but they're very heavy meat based, but my husband still has some junk food around the first year I had to tell him to hide the junk food. So he did like he had it in his backpack and other places because I couldn't have around. So knowing your environment is huge. And then having just um, like, if you're out at work all day and then you come home or you were with your kids all day and you come home and you don't have food ready, it's so much easier to grab the chips or grab a piece yep. of bread or so then have foods that you can microwave in like five minutes or have some deli meat or some cheese, but have foods that your excuse isn't well, I didn't have food around. So I, and I was so hungry. So I, we always have ground beef. We always have eggs. We always have bacon and deli meat so that in case any of us and beef jerky. And so in case any of us are hungry, there's always better options to get to mm -hmm. instead of, you know, eating the like not so ideal foods. So those would be my three kind of yeah, I, lo I love those suggestions. And I, um, I use the analogy of a toolbox, create a new toolbox, your fridge and your pantry are your toolboxes. If a light breaks in your house or burns out, you can't replace it without extra light bulbs. So make sure you have the goods to go to when you need to. And there's some really amazing carnivore snacks that you can buy on Amazon, like carnivore crisp, which are taste like chips, but they're made just from different meats. Um, there's all sorts of very creative things out there to fill in the gaps when you need to. Uh, this was just such a great, I wish we could talk for another hour, but we're not going to because I know you've got to get back to being a mom and um, we're at eight o'clock and where can my community find you? 
So my book can be found at carnivorecure.com. The paperback is available on Amazon. And then for all the international people, you can either buy it at carnivorecure.com and then get it shipped out to your country. Otherwise, um, because I'm just a, you know, really small, it's just me basically. Um, Or you can buy the ebook and that's available sort of everywhere. The audio book is coming out probably end of April, early May. And so that will be available too. Um, In terms of me, you can find me Nutrition with Judy on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Um, I have a podcast as well. Um, But, you know, I just share infographics, just trying to educate people on nutrition. And it's not to just demonize plants because I think certain people will you know, be able to tolerate other plants. Like I ate a pound of spinach every day and thank God I didn't get oxalate poisoning, right? So I didn't even have the oxalate dumping even after I stopped spinach, which I ate almost for 12 years every single day, but I didn't have that. So I was lucky in that sense, but other people, they have really bad oxalate dumping. So you have to just figure out what works for you. And this is where I'm very a fan of just, you know, whether it's grass fed, grain fed, again, just find what works. Obviously there are ideals. You can get that into that later, but if you just don't feel well, just try something different. Um, And that's a lot of the information I share. So I just share a lot of facts on, you know, where can you get vitamin C in foods? Uh, What's the whole deal about fiber, cholesterol, all of that. So Mm -hmm. that is all found on nutrition with Judy. And I will put that all on social media too. So you don't have trouble finding her. She's got such great tips and um, stories on Instagram. I follow her and have learned, I thought I knew a lot, but I've learned so much more from Judy. So Judy, thank you so much again for being a guest on the health trip podcast and, um, let's keep in touch. I might have even pick your brain after this over a couple issues I'm having myself. And it was just lovely to meet you and hear your perspective on the carnivore diet. And thank you so much for um, joining us and sharing all of your information. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.